Yeah, welcome to this episode of Saintly Witnesses, where I speak to the Catholic behind the account. Speaking with Sam Rocha today, who is, uh, you know, a Catholic, a dynamic Catholic speaker, uh, academic, uh, extraordinaire, musician, family man, husband, lecturer, uh, all that in one. And so I'm just glad to have somebody on today to share their faith journey and to also provide that glimpse into academia. So thank you for coming in today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yep. So a little bit about Sam uh, Rocha. He has a he went to Franciscan University at Steubenville, earned a BA in philosophy and Spanish literature. Then afterwards, he completed an MA in educational leadership at University of St. Thomas. And lastly, uh, he earned he completed an MA and PhD in philosophy of education at Ohio State University. Um, in addition to those, like I mentioned, he's a family man, he's a husband, a dad, a rocking musician, a professor, an author. Uh, yeah, he's just an all-around renaissance man. So um, we're being too we're gonna, nice. We're going to hear all that today. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah, I read on your bio that you said that you grew up in a, a lay missionary family. So tell us about your faith journey. Like how was, how was that experience growing up as a youngin? how to lead you in your middle years and ultimately now. Sure. Well, it's a long story, but, um, you know, my, my dad was, uh, uh, a person in the late 1970s who had a profound, um, uh, religious conversion that led to his, uh, to an end to his, uh, addiction to heroin. So my dad was a heroin addict in the seventies and a drug dealer and that very kind of dramatic, conversion story and testimony kind of catapulted him into at the time really youth ministry um and so through his travels um doing ministry he met my mother and they they eventually got married and that's when i was born in brownsville texas in 1982 uh where he was stationed at a small parish uh good shepherd parish in brownsville so i'm i mean there's cradle Catholic. And then like my literal cradle was like literally <laughs> in a parish. Um, the parish secretary, Melanie kind of was like my nanny babysitter in many ways. And so, so I've grown up uh, not only a Catholic, but also a Catholic and an active full-time ministry family. Um, we moved around a lot because of it, to be completely honest. Uh, there were a lot of blessings, like, for instance, the charismatic renewal movement or the Renovación Cristiana was kind of the the spirituality of our family, um, which meant there was a lot of music. So I started playing guitar really early, fifth grade. I remember having an oatmeal box playing the bongos at prayer meetings, you know. So, um, you know, I was, I was raised in the church. I was raised in a very particular brand and kind of also cross-cultural church uh, in the sense of the Mexican uh, church, the Latin American expressions of, of Catholicism and also the kind of Anglo-American. Um, but then uh, it was also hard. We were pretty poor, <laughs> to be honest. Um, uh, the church isn't really well set up to this day to support lay ministry. So that was hard. But, uh, you know, I um, graduated from high school. Um, I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville mainly because a priest friend of ours had called Father Michael Scanlon on the phone and said, look, I'm the eldest of five. So uh, I was the first one to leave and go to college. I said, look, these people have, have been in ministry their whole lives. They don't have a cent to their name. 
can you give their kid, you know, a spot? And he basically just told me to come on up. And if I could keep my grades up, I could stick around. So I kind of went there on a kind of Rudy Rudiger sort of scholarship. And then I had applied to the Gates scholarship, but it was only a year old. So I didn't know what it was. And I didn't know I got it until September. I was already at Franciscan. Um, and that covered me, you know, for a while. But, uh, but I got there and, you know, I met my wife, um, and uh, she also comes from a strong Catholic family uh, in Minnesota. Uh, we got married right after right after uh, um, uh, college, and you know started life together. Um, I would say that probably for me in my midlife, um, early marriage, there were some there were some some difficulties within that. I was raised in such a kind of vibrant and intense Catholicism that it was almost like I sprinted through being Catholic for the first 18 years of my life, 20 years of my life. And I just kind of assumed everyone, like I would just keep sprinting and I hit some real, like some real challenges to my faith. Uh, Some of it had to do with seeing people who I had witnessed growing up with and who had kind of been instrumental in my coming to faith sort of, not do so great on their faith journey. And that really kind of made me have to face like, do I want to be Catholic myself or am I just following them? And, you know, there was all kinds of stuff like that. Um, So I would say that probably whenever I was entering grad school, I had a moment where I really thought Ohio state and Columbus, where I really thought, you know, maybe, maybe this is as far as I've gone, you know, it's been kind of a good run, an intense run, but I thought maybe I was done. And I'll never forget that, um, you know, I grew up in a charismatic renewal movement, a very particular kind of ministry, a very particular kind of spirituality and kind of liturgy. And I, uh, I walked into St. Joseph's Cathedral in downtown Columbus, which is a kind of smallish cathedral, but it has this gigantic pipe organ in the back. And on their high mass at 1130, they have a full, like from sopra sopranos all the way down full uh, choir. And I had never experienced, you could say, kind of the high liturgy before in my life, uh, really. Um, and there was something about that 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 particular liturgical expression and that particular mass, along with a, a wonderful uh, pr- uh, priest and preacher, Father Joseph Getz, that um, kind of grabbed a hold of me right at the moment where I, I, I say I was ready to leave the church and I walked into a marble pillar of St. Joseph's and... And ever since then, I guess I've kind of, uh, I've seen my faith as a series of happy accidental moments of kind of falling in and out of love, but then always in, instead of the out of love being out of the church, finding some deeper pocket in the church that I didn't know about or that I didn't understand. Um, and that's really been my my teaching career. So when I left Ohio State at my first job, I, I, w- I became pretty active in the Newman Center and also with some other students who who weren't uh, uh, affiliated with the the Catholic uh, uh, students, uh, and we started reading some books like Augustine's Confessions, Bonaventure, and 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 I think the Catholic intellectual tradition has, in some sense, for me, it was an inheritance that I didn't always realize I was carrying around, and I and over time I've been able to appreciate that as another one of these kind of pillars I turn to. So. You know, now I'm here. I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I'm a Mexican American living in Canada, so I'm a NAFTA basically. Um, 
I have a mandatum for my archbishop. I'm very lucky to be able to teach here and on matters of theology with the authority of, of um, well, under fidelity to my archbishop. And I do try and do that. I did it probably more when I first came. Um, but, um, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely a part of my identity here. Uh, include, even though I'm working at a secular university, I think it's well known within the faculty and within my department and, and amongst my students that I'm a person of faith and a religious person. And what's interesting about that is it gathers interesting um, interreligious settings because it's a secular school. So, you know, I have a lot of uh, Jewish brothers and sisters who, uh, uh, who are students and interlocutors, uh, some Muslim students, uh, and, and also very curious humanists and atheists, agnostics who are kind of, kind of religiously curious, you could say. And, you know, I've had a reading group here going on, and, and we've read a number of things. But one of the, the exciting things, and this will be my last thing, I guess, is I had my dad up here visiting. And, uh, you know, my dad's an evangelist now. He just retired, but he's, he's been doing this since 78 when I started. And he sat in a room with me leading a reading group on Augustine's Confessions, including book nine and 10, which is where Augustine has his like full conversion, right? And my dad's there reading these like, you know, these intense passages of religious conversion uh, in the company of atheists and Shia Muslims and Orthodox Jews and uh, and all these people who I don't think he would have ever, I mean, he told me afterwards, I could have never have imagined um, that such a group of people would read such a book, but that's very much um, in some sense, the, the full circle of where my work is today. A lot of that's where my work is. On Twitter, I talk to the church a lot more than I thought I would, uh, but in my everyday, that's where I am. And, you know, I'm really blessed to be here. And, you know, my music continues. I, I, I work a lot with St. Mark's Parish, you know, in the music ministry and whatnot. And uh, yeah, so that's a little bit of a early, middle and late story. Oh, that's phenomenal, phenomenal to hear. And especially the part about your dad and how he had a, has that profound moment with uh, St. Augustine and his work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, so... Next question is, have you had any memorable moments in your faith journey where, you know, a teaching or influential figure came in your life and showed you something or a teaching just opened your eyes? Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of them. It's, it's too many. Just because of the way I was raised, there was so many mentors. That, like, it kind of like, when I look back on my life, there was moments where I, I think my faith could have gone in a lot of different directions. And there was, there's always like a priest or a nun or, or something that really stepped in there. Um, I think a lot about, um, one of my mentors through kind of the late stages of my high school, I had to move my senior year. So I was kind of out to see that last year, uh, father, Sam Holmesy, uh, he's a Leb he was a Lebanese priest, he called himself an Arab, um, uh, priest. Um, he was really old. He was like, he was like literally like 96 and he walked straight up, you know, and, uh, Father Sam, um, he was interesting. He was politically uh, probably the most far left uh, person, frankly, that I ever met. Um, yet he loved Christ. We sang the the, the we we sang the um, uh, Salve Regina together every evening, and he was a holy man. Uh, and a man who loved to study, he had stacks of books next to him and he would read like five books at once all the time. Um, and um, 
you know, he taught me a lot about writing in particular. Uh, he would have me write a column in the bulletin uh, when I, I lived with him for a summer, uh, uh, him and the pastor of a parish. Um, so he really helped me learn in some ways how to be a scholar and also how to read. And, um, and also ideologically, I think he woke me up to the fact that like, wow, um, he was very active and uh, he lived in Chile for a long time as a missionary. He was the pastor of a black Catholic church in Nashville during, um, I mean, right in the middle of the civil rights movement. Uh, he desegregated the, cause there were also segregated parishes in West Texas between Mexicans and, and, and white folk. He desegregated the parish of Ballinger, Texas without even telling his Bishop, he got in huge trouble for it. But uh, he, um, yeah, he was someone who, who I think, back on a lot to this day so i would say him um who else um there's so many there's so many i would say one of the one of the um one of the people who really inspired me one of the moments along the way that really inspired me was um whenever i was uh at my first job in indiana uh, and a member of a parish, a small, you know, Indiana Midwestern parish there. Um, I really remember, and I've written about this a bit in one of my books that, uh, the priest who was a priest there struck me as like, <laughs> his homilies were like the worst thing I'd ever heard. Like they were just to me, just, I don't know. I just, you know, I was pretty judgmental and I still am, but I was really like, you know, kind of put off by the whole thing. And, um, I remember once going to, cause he would sometimes say mass at the college where I worked. And so I would sometimes go to mass there at the college. Um, Wabash college was the name of it. And I remember once seeing his, um, his page of his notes for his homily. And I noticed something really curious, which was these heavy highlights and different colors, which I came later to learn was um, he was on the spectrum. He had a, a he had Asperger's and didn't really have a certain capacity to deliver rhetorically um, language with the kind of emotion and affect that I was, you know, used to and expecting. And as I stayed there, I wasn't there very long. We were only there for two years, but I learned across my time there areas in which he excelled as a pastor. Um, he had a military background, interestingly. Um, and it really woke me up to some of the pretensions of my expectations of, you know, the good priest, you know, being, you know, just killing it on the pulpit or like, you know, whatever. I, I, I was really humbled and it caused me, in fact, to really fall in love with his preaching because I was able to listen to it as a person really making themselves vulnerable uh, to people through an and really as an act of humility and and over time as odd as it may sound i would i would count him as for these reasons maybe my favorite preacher <laughs> uh it reminds me of, of moses you know in hebrew whenever whenever god tells moses uh um at the burning bush um to, to go and talk to, 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 to Pharaoh, uh, what Moses says to God in Hebrew can be translated as I can't speak or my tongue is tied, or even you could say I have a speech impediment. Um, and so, yeah, th I learned something really profound uh, in that time. He wasn't a mentor probably in the way that Father Sam was or other people have been, but he taught me a lot about what's important.
it wasn't not too long ago that I heard on Al Cresta's show that he interviewed uh, some professor and he mentioned that Moses, he mentioned what you just mentioned about the, the original Hebrew and how Moses was a, a stutterer and how he chronicled mm -hmm. different famous stutterers across history. And so that was interesting to know. And I think, definitely think that takes a lot of vulnerability to get up there and preach, even though that's probably not your strong suit, but you still make yourself available to the people as a priest. Exactly. Uh, so the next question is, um, so what would you say to anybody who wants to discern or who is discerning the Catholic church? What would you say to them to come, to come to her? Yeah. You know, these are, uh, well, for one, you know, the church is booming in, in, in Africa and in India and in Latin America. Um, I think people's reasons for being interested in the church it's interesting, right? So I think in some cases there can be a kind of a cultural movement into Catholicism. Um, in other cases, though, I think the kind of the kind of interest in Catholicism we see in like the United States tends to be fairly individualistic, where people go to RCA in units of one. You know, um, in in the early scriptures and the Acts, entire families would come to the church, right? And so sometimes I think it's a bit curious the way we think about like. Um, how we witness to others, like, does it make a difference between a kind of a cultural witness to many people or to an entire family or to an entire village, for instance, or an entire, or to an entire, like, single person who's kind of an individual, right? Um, I would say that in many ways, the, the, the ability of, of the Catholic Church to give a kind of cultural or social witness uh, is uh, maybe more important today than the need to make an individualistic um, witness to a single interested person. What I mean to say is that like, um, I think there's a, there's a real joy and a real richness to Catholicism um, that we can uh, show to people who may not themselves be interested in becoming Catholics like tomorrow or next week but who can maybe revise their understanding of what being Catholic is and what it means and leave open the possibility for um, that witness to bear fruit in any number of ways. I've had, you know, students, for instance, by the way, students from Latin America, like, like I have, I had recently, I'm thinking of like a Colombian student. So Colombia is a very Catholic country culturally, right? Latin America is very Catholic culturally. I had a Colombian student from Latin America tell me, you know, um, it, it was never obvious to me that you could be Catholic in, in this kind of a way, in a way that thinks, in a way that's intellectual, in a way that's not afraid to ask difficult questions, right? In a kind of, in this philosophical way. And I, and I chuckled and said, well, you know, there you have it. Uh, I had a student at, at, at Wabash once tell me, I thought all philosophers were atheists. And I was like, no, no, no. Are you kidding me? Have you heard of Thomas Aquinas or whatever? So I think a lot of what I would say is that is that in many cases there are people who won't hear the gospel in individual units of one, but will hear it in, in a social and a cultural expression. And I think that's important. Now to your question though, yeah, if someone is actually interested in like becoming Catholic today or tomorrow, what I would say is like really, really, really um, uh, turn yourself over. I would say to scripture, um, I think in many cases, uh, especially today in the American church, there can be this kind of like, what's the best book to read about the church? It's like it's pretty much scripture, I think. Um, 
And, and I think in particular to discern your way into the church using scripture as a guide, I think is really important. And then in addition to that, you know, I think the church gives us a lot of tools. My favorite book to introduce someone into Christianity, which isn't necessarily the Catholic church, but just the idea of, of Christianity that the church is, is within is um, Pope Benedict XVI when he was a Cardinal Ratzinger, his, his introduction to Christianity. I just love that book. I think it's so fantastic. Um, it's a bit of a thick tome to get into. Um, but I would say like, you know, don't just fall in love with the church. Um, uh, some people say the head, some people say the heart. I would say fall in love with it with every part of your body you can associate with. So with your gut, with your foot, with your finger, with your nose, with your ears. Um, the church, I think, has something for everything. I think the church has a great visual arts tradition, great sacred arts musical tradition, great orators, uh, great texts to read, wonderful things to think with, wonderful things to feel in your heart. Um, but like also check out like maybe a Puerto Rican parish and have some of their amazing food or like check out the Polish festival and have some of their pierogies or like, you know, like really, I would say like jump headfirst into the richness of, uh, uh, of what the faith has in every way. Cause it has a lot to offer both sacred and secular, I would say. I think that's a good advice. I think what you were saying, how I understood it is, you know, we look at it from the bottom up, but if you look at it conversely from the top down, you'll find more richness and, and beauty and goodness in it. Yeah, I think so. And I think that that's when we look at like um, uh, the global South, for instance, and the way it encounters Catholicism, it, it often doesn't encounter it through uh, units of one or in the early church, the, the idea of entire families or the Pentecost day that it's usually kind of a movement of the spirit that, that arises almost uh, within a people like you would see like a political movement, like, you know, in, in the sense of people rising up and being, you know, spirit filled um, and being called to join the church. And, you know, I, um, I probably don't practice my faith today in as overtly a charismatic way as I used to, but I do know that growing up in the renewal, I did see that at times that like there was this kind of joy of the gospel, as Francis has put it, that um, that a Wednesday night prayer meeting could kind of convey to an entire family uh, that that would really kind of change, you know, people. But I do believe in units of one, by the way. I, I mean, I'm just sometimes I worry that we only think of uh, our witness as, you know, individualistic and there is a social witness of the church too. Yeah, most definitely. So now we're going to go into the human interest component. And, yeah. you know, I mentioned in the beginning, you know, all your different degrees and accolades regarding, you know, Franciscan Steubenville and Ohio State. And, you know, I read that you published a new book in 2020 called The Syllabus as Curriculum a reconceptualist approach. And I'm sure that d dives into, you know, philosophy and education and social sciences. And so, you know, how did, and you wrote a, a, a popular dissertation that I was trying to research too. <laughs> so I'm wondering like, how did you, you know, what prompted you to get into you know, academia like that and higher education? Yeah. Well, I, um, uh, I didn't really, have a big plan to become a university professor. In fact, I think in many ways, when I studied philosophy, I often would would promise people like, don't worry, I'm not be going to become a philosophy professor, you know. Um, 
Because to me at the time, it seemed like there was something kind of pointless. Like, why would you study philosophy to just teach philosophy and not do anything? You know, um, I kind of fell into this and I fell into it through a series of, you know, happy accidents and blessings and uh, maybe some mistakes even, you know. Um, but, um, you know, for, for me at least, uh, I, I was introduced to the life of the mind as early as growing up in parishes, one of the, one of the aspects of like the, the, the priestly life or the religious life um, is a, a degree of intellectual formation and the need to foster a healthy um, intellect. And so, you know, any church office, I believe, uh, at least the ones I grew up in, if you went into the pastor's uh, office, they'd have some bookshelves. And on those bookshelves, you've had some, you know, some theology and some philosophy, maybe some literature, you know. Um, and uh, it wasn't just self-help stuff, you know. It was, it was, there was some meaty stuff on those shelves. And, uh, and the same went with, you know, other staff members, uh, religious sisters, nuns. You know, my dad's office always had, you know, some stuff, you know. Paulist pressed encyclicals, all that kind of stuff, you know. So I grew up, I would say, in a, in a immersed in a kind of intellectual culture of a kind that wasn't academic, but it was ecclesial, right? It was the church's intellectual, pastoral, intellectual formation, and I learned through mainly my dad, but also listening to others, this exegesis or interpretation, and in particular the the, the ability to. Um, to use uh, to, to to use scripture as a as a means in which to um, uh, explain and, uh, um, and and give an account of some important aspect of life or whatever, and uh, and that beautiful dance we see every Sunday between the first reading and the and the responsorial psalm and the second reading and the gospel, and then you got to put them all together, and sometimes you have a liturgical feast on top of it, and that game of Tetris, you know. Of, how do these things go together and the styles and certain orders have a certain way of, of homiletic approaches and others. And, and so I, you know, I just grew up in that without thinking about it, but I look back on it now and I realize, Oh wow, that's really where my formation started. Uh, when I got to, to, to junior high and high school, I started participating in competitive forensics. So speech and debate and stuff. And I became quite a, quite a competitive debater in high school. And uh, the Guadalupana Society, this little kind of Mexican uh, uh, women's society in our church, they sent me with a scholarship to Baylor University for a debate camp uh, one year. And there at Baylor, they handed me uh, my first kind of my own stack of books, um, political philosophy from Plato to John Rawls. And, and that was my first kind of like formal introduction to philosophy. And I heard philosophy professors who talked to us and I got to go to the bookstore and buy a couple books. Um, and so I, and then back at, at my parish, there was a priest who happened to be the, the attorney, uh, the defense attorney for the county, uh, who was a philosophy major and he kind of saw some promise in me. So he would read Aquinas with me and stuff like that. And so, so I got a real early start in a weird way in, with both philosophy and life of the mind in general. And even though I, I kind of grew up, you know, poor and didn't have a lot of access to some of the, the standard academic, maybe training or credentials or access i learned how to talk i learned how to how to how to read i didn't learn how to write until really college <laughs> and uh, and that took longer but i knew how to read and i knew how to talk right and so i took those with me and i i threw myself to my studies and and it turns out that that 
formation, that early formation and talking and reading, um, I feel like I still haven't run out of resources from it. You know, I've, uh, I'm still tapping into that, those basic skills and I've added a few others along the way, but that's how I find me where I am. And like, in terms of talking and reading, that's where teaching, like, I just didn't know that's what teaching was yet, but now I've discovered that. So most of my writing, ironically, is in a weird way, I'm in a subfield called philosophy of education, is talking about what it means to talk and read with other people, which you would call teaching, um, and uh, and what the meaning is for our understanding of education, uh, and also in particular how that understanding of education, in particular through the act of teaching uh, and, and study, um, how that in some sense uh, opens up portals into even bigger questions like what it means to be human. So in this field of philosophy of education and, you know, through your writing, uh, how have you experienced any you know, challenges? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my biggest challenge is that uh, as much as I feel like I have been really blessed with this deep formation in the intellectual life, um, it wasn't always conscious to me. So becoming conscious of it also meant becoming conscious of certain limits. So, um, you know, I, I just, I never had any uh, really good uh, training and writing. Uh, I didn't get a classical education in languages. I didn't have some of the skills that a lot of people coming out of the boarding schools in particular, or the Ivy leagues or the, you know, the, you know, uh, those institutions are, are, uh, you know, they're formidable for a reason. And, and I didn't have any of that. So, you know, I, uh, I've learned at first I was bitter, of course. Right. Uh, but I've learned to not be bitter. I've learned to actually, uh, well, one, uh, to work harder and to pick up some of those skills a little bit later. Um, but I've also learned the ways in which um, my mode of my style of philosophy is kind of affected by the sort of folk way in which I came into this, uh, which has a, a pastoral dimension, as I've discussed. Uh, but it also has a kind of almost excess accessibility. So like when I talk to people in parish basements about, let's say, um, uh, uh, atheism, like, like the philosophical idea of atheism, people will be like, Oh, I like, I, I like the way you talk philosophy. I feel like I can kind of understand it. Whereas other philosophers talk and no one can understand anything they say. Right. So I don't know. I, I think the, the challenges I've faced, I've learned to kind of adapt into parts of my style. Yeah. Good to hear. On the other hand, with every challenge, you know, it has to be some benefits. So what have been some, you know, really, beneficial or rewarding, you know, experiences that you've had while uh, pursuing, you know, being a professor and an author in the philosophy of education? Yeah, well, I mean, there's more than I could say. Um, you know, I, I've been given this life uh, where I can essentially write and read and talk and I get to make music too. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've, I'm richly, richly blessed with a, a life of, of a certain kind of leisure, to be honest. Um, and, I, and, I, and as much as I grew up in the church in a kind of white collar poverty, you know, I come from working people. Um, my, my grandparents on one side were born on a horse ranch and on the other side were born on a sheep field. So I, I come from 
people work with their hands and work in the earth. And so the kind of leisure I have is astonishing to me sometimes. I almost feel guilty about it half the time. Um, but with that comes some real rewards, especially my ability to spend time with my family um, and, to, and to raise my family and for us to have a family of, of a certain kind. Our kids don't go to school, so we all kind of, especially with COVID, we just kind of are together all the time. And I love that. I, I, I actually, I, um, I'm very happy that we can have that life. And it hasn't always been easy and it hasn't always been um, I haven't all, I, I just got tenure last year, so I haven't always had maybe as much leisure as it may seem, but I, but I have uh, seen us grow together uh, as a family. Uh, the, 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 the cost to that though has been, you have to be very, very mobile in the academic job market because oddly enough, when you reach a certain peak of terminal expertise, you actually are, have a, a smaller rather than a bigger uh, set of options for employment. So that's what I'm doing in Canada, basically. It's just, you go where the jobs go. But no, it's been great. And, and this leisure and, and means I get to go fishing next week for a week, which I'm really excited for. I really appreciate you. I mean, the way you said it and described, you know, the benefits sounded really like a real embrace of humility. So that sounds real powerful. So the last, the last question that I think is the most important question, and it goes over both the faith and what you do now, is how do you insert your Catholic faith into this, this role that you do? I know that you said you go to or that you work in a secular university and you have mm -hmm. many different faiths. So uh, I'm sure you're a good witness there. So how do you insert your Catholic faith as a witness there? Yeah, this is this is a good question. And in some ways, it, it can seem like a tricky question. Although for me, it hasn't been as tricky as it sounds to live. Um, yeah, I, I work at the University of British Columbia. It's uh, one of the largest universities. In, well, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's among the two or three largest universities in Canada. And it's, you know, a big research one, you know, university. I live on campus. So like, you know, I, I, I I live where I work and you know, everything is here. Um, and it's a secular university, uh, which means it's the provincial or state university of, of, of this province or state in Canada. Um, it's, it's very similar to Ohio state in a number of ways, like, you know, where I went to grad school. Um, and I teach in a department of educational studies, which studies education from as many different angles as you can imagine, historical, sociological, philosophical, cultural studies, you know, everything you can imagine. Um, and most of those approaches are not uh, remotely uh, religious or theological in their nature. Um, however, <laughs> if you really want to study education uh, historically or any other way, there is no way possible to ignore out of hand uh, the very real presence and the really huge impact that religious and theological traditions have had. So for instance, the most widely read book in educational studies around the entire world, translated into the most languages, sold the most copies, is a book by a Brazilian educator named Paulo Freire. Paulo Freire um, published a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Pedagogia do Oprimido, in, in the late 60s. Uh, and this book, believe it or not, is not only a book uh, that is the most popular book in my entire field, but its author, Paulo Freire, is um, 
depending on who you ask, not even considered an educationalist or a philosopher. In many cases, he was seen as a theologian. For instance, when James Cone wrote his uh, Black Liberation Theology book, he asked one person in the entire world to write the preface to that book, and it was Paulo Freire. So there's a kind of um, a forgotten theological story to be told in education about how arguably one of the most important thinkers uh, was a professed Roman Catholic. And uh, he even says in the preface to Pedagogia do Primido that there will only be two kinds of people who read my book to the end. He says, Christians and Marxists. <laughs> um, and that tells you a little bit about sort of the, the, the circles he was running in. But to me, there's something really powerful about the the fact that in education, in the mainstream secular field, as you might call it or whatever, it's always already um, filled with any number of Christian and Catholic thinkers and, and thoughts. So a lot of the way that I am Catholic in my work is just by doing the work and not ignoring out of hand the, uh, the already ever-present uh, impact that um, – that my religious tradition or other religious traditions have had on it. Another example is like I teach educational theory and like, I don't believe you can study educational theory without studying Plato. A lot of our ideas about education come out of Plato. One of the biggest ideas is this Greek word anamnesis, which means remembrance or to remember. There's a line in the Mino where he says, all learning and inquiry is but remembrance or remembering or anamnesis. Interestingly, that word anamnesis if you take it out of Attic Greek, which is what Plato used and put it into Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written, is the same word that Jesus uses whenever he says, do this in memory of me. And also whenever Paul referring to the Eucharist as memory talks about. So, interest, so what's so interesting is that when I teach Plato as a Catholic, I think I have more imaginative resources to make sense of this very basic theory of learning that all learning is but recollection or memory work, you know, um, because I'm a Roman Catholic and I can see this word and this Platonic inheritance uh, working itself, not only through its original Greek sources, but of the way it was spread through Christianity, both to the East and to the West. So, you know, for me, being uh, a Roman Catholic and being a religious person, I think makes me better at my job. <laughs> uh, I'm a better philosopher. I'm a better philosopher of education, I believe, because I um, am, am, better to take stock of things that are already in the in the tradition. So a lot of my work is reminding the so-called secular world that even the world sec the word secular is a religious term that Catholics invented in secula seculorum. Um, and that annoys people sometimes, but that's a lot of my work on that side. When I go to speak to my brothers and sisters in the church, I often remind them that to be Catholic doesn't mean to only be sacred and not be secular. It doesn't mean that you ignore Plato because we have Paul. It means you take up Paul and Plato like Augustine did and like many others have as well. So in a weird way, I kind of remind the secular world of the natural sacredness that is already among them and call attention to it. Um, and in the sacred world, I remind them of the sort of natural secu secular uh, uh, nature of things that are all around them and call attention to it. And that's kind of the way I work. And I believe within what I do for a living, which is I see philosophy as kind of um, making the familiar strange. I defamiliarize 
the secular through the sacred and I defamiliarize the sacred through the secular, depending on where I find myself. And it's a, it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. The great reminder of the culture and the church. I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's going to conclude our time on this interview today. And I, I definitely appreciate you sharing such a, a wealth of knowledge and on the academic front and you know, your experiences and, you know, quite frankly, your struggles growing up uh, in developing the faith as your own. And so uh, definitely thank you for taking out this time and I hope and pray that you continue to perform your music regularly. I know you release CDs. Or yeah. You release CDs. Um, you do a lot of research with in the field of education and uh, continue to publish your, your work too. So I uh, definitely appreciate this time and I pray that you can Continue to grow in your ministry. So, uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Thank you so much. Well, this is going to conclude this episode of Saintly Witnesses. You guys can tune in for the next episode.